0: Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Welcome back. Today we'll be covering 1 Nephi chapters 10 through 14, but first we have our trivia question from last time. The question was, how many times are camels mentioned in the Book of Mormon? The answer is zero. The word camel does not appear a single time. Camels are such an integral part of how we visualize the story that I assume they were mentioned at least a few times, but unfortunately, no the reason I was curious is because Lehi's first camp was three days outside of Jerusalem and I wanted to know how far that was. I learned on the internet that camels walk at a pace of about 3-4 to four miles per hour, which is about the speed of a human. So it's likely that they traveled about 20 miles per day, whether on camel or on foot. It's almost certain that they had camels, they were wealthy, they had a lot of provisions to carry. but. The word camel is nowhere to be found. Last time we talked about Lehi's dream. Chapter 10 begins with Lehi speaking to Laman and Lemuel about his dream. Although he saw in his dream that Laman and Lemuel did not partake of the fruit, he never gave up on them. He hoped for them and encouraged them to keep the commandments. Next, in the beginning of chapter 10, Lehi prophesied about the Jews in Jerusalem. They would soon be destroyed other than a few survivors carried captive to Babylon. But even so, he prophesied, the Jews would eventually emerge from captivity and return to the lands of their inheritance. So let's talk history for just a minute. The destruction of Jerusalem happened roughly 10 years after Zedekiah's reign began, about 10 years after Lehi and his family left the city. Zedekiah stopped paying tribute to Babylon, so after a lengthy siege, Babylon looted and destroyed Solomon's temple, tore down the walls surrounding Jerusalem, and carried many citizens back to Babylon. There, they remained captive for nearly 50 years until Cyrus and the Persians conquered Babylon. Although some of the historical accounts contradict each other, this is what seems to be what happened. As Cyrus, the Persian king, marched south with his armies, he met and defeated the Babylonian army. The king of Babylon at the time, Nabonidus, I think is how you pronounce it, was unpopular with the Babylonians because, at least partially, because he worshipped a different god than they did. Most Babylonians worshipped Marduk, the king worshipped someone else. So with the Persians approaching, the the king fled and Cyrus was welcomed into Babylon without violence as a type of liberator. Not only did Cyrus allow the people he conquered to retain their own religions, but he helped fund and support them. So a year after Babylon fell, not only did Cyrus allow the Jews to return to Israel, but he paid for them to rebuild their temple. We find this described in chapter 6 of Ezra in the Old Testament, verse 3. In the first year of Cyrus, the king, the same Cyrus the king made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be builded, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations thereof be strongly laid, the height thereof of three score cubits, and the breadth thereof of three score cubits, with three rows of great stones and a row of new timber, and let the expenses, be given out of the king's house. And also let the golden and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took forth out of the temple, which is at Jerusalem, and brought unto Babylon, be restored, brought again unto the temple, which is at Jerusalem, every one to his place, and place them in the house of God. Lehi prophesied of that event in 1 Nephi 10.3. He said that after they, referring to the Jews, should be destroyed, even that great city Jerusalem, and many be carried away captive into Babylon, according to the own due time of the Lord, they should return again, yea, even be brought back out of captivity, and after they should be brought back out of captivity, they should possess again the land of their inheritance. Lehi further prophesied to his sons that 600 years after they left Jerusalem, God would raise a Messiah among the Jews, John the Baptist preparing the way for him. Then, after being crucified by the Jews, Christ would rise from the dead and manifest Himself by the Holy Ghost unto the Gentiles. Lehi compared the scattering and gathering of Israel to an olive tree whose branches are scattered and then grafted back in. Later on, when we reach the Book of Jacob, we'll read Zenus's olive tree allegory that uses an olive vineyard to symbolize the scattering and gathering of Israel. The allegory was written on the brass plates And from what we see and hear, it appears that Lehi had been reading it. After hearing about Lehi's dreams and prophecies, Nephi wanted to see, hear, and know the same things for himself. We find this in verse 17. I, Nephi, was desirous also that I might see and hear and know of the things by the power of the Holy Ghost, which is the gift of God unto all those who diligently seek Him, as well in times of old as in the time that He should manifest Himself unto the children of men. For he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the way is prepared for all men from the foundation of the world, if it so be that they repent and come unto him. Nephi described this process of learning through visions and Revelation as though it were a very straightforward thing. In verse 19 he said, For he that diligently seeketh shall find, and the mysteries of God shall be unfolded to them, by the power of the Holy Ghost, as well in these times as in times of old and as well in times of old as in times to come, wherefore the course of God is one eternal round. Nephi sometimes seemed confused or frustrated by his brother's inability to to seek or receive answers. This is honestly another case where I identify more with Nephi's brothers. Would I like to have visions? Yes. Is that what happens? So let's move on to chapter 11. Nephi sat pondering, believing the Lord could help him understand his father's dream. And as he pondered, he said, he was caught away in the spirit of the Lord and taken to a tall, unfamiliar mountain. The spirit asked Nephi what he wanted, and he answered that he wanted to see what his father saw. "'Believest thou that thy father saw the tree of which he hath spoken?' asked the angel. Nephi answered, "'Yea. Thou knowest that I believe all the words of my father. The phrasing, in my opinion, is important here. Nephi did not say simply, yes, I believe, but instead, thou knowest that I believe. In my opinion, he's saying, of of course I believe, can't you tell? Hearing Nephi's answer, the spirit rejoiced and told Nephi that he would see what he wished to see. He also said to expect a sign. After seeing the tree with the fruit his father tasted, he would see the Son of God descending from heaven. Although Nephi had said he wanted to hear and see through the Spirit what his father had heard and seen, Nephi's vision was not a replay of his father's vision. Instead, he received his his own vision. Although as Nephi's vision progressed, his, his guides sometimes referred to his father's vision or discussed its meanings, Nephi's vision began with him seeing the beautiful white tree that his father had seen. He asked the spirit what it represented, but he received no answer. So he looked around and discovered that his guide had disappeared. Nephi next saw several towns and cities, including Jerusalem and Nazareth. In Nazareth he saw a very fair and white virgin. An angel descended and revealed to Nephi that this virgin would be the earthly mother of the Son of God. The virgin left and then reappeared, holding a child. The angel asked, paraphrasing, Now do you know what the tree represents?" Nephi answered, still paraphrasing, Yes, it's the love of God and the most desirable of all things. Nephi watched as the Son of God went forth and mingled with the world's inhabitants. Several of them fell to the ground and worshipped him. Nephi realized that the iron rod his father had seen was the word of God leading to a fountain of living waters or the tree of life. Both the fountain and the tree symbolized God's love. Now with both the tree and the iron rod, Nephi learned what the symbols from his father's dream meant, while his own vision was about something else. While seeing Mary and her baby, he understood that the tree symbolized the love of God. While seeing multitudes worshiping Jesus, he realized that the iron rod represented the Word of God. My experience with the scriptures and the temple has been similar in that I often learn things unrelated to what I'm reading or viewing. Look, said the angel, and behold the condescension of God. I looked up condescension in the Merriam-Webster online dictionary and it said, a voluntary descent from one's rank or dignity in relations with an inferior. Essentially, the angel told Nephi to watch as the Savior voluntarily descended to earth to join his subjects. Nephi saw the Savior going forth in power and great glory, and the multitudes were gathered together to hear him. But then Nephi says, I beheld that they cast him out from among them. Nephi saw twelve others following the Savior, and also angels, descending to the children of men and ministering unto them. The Savior healed multitudes of sick and diseased people, and cast evil spirits from others. Then as he watched, Nephi saw Jesus lifted on a cross and slain for the world's sins. Then he saw multitudes gathered together to fight against the apostles. The multitudes were in a large and spacious building, like the one his father had described in his dream. The angel said, Behold, the world and the wisdom thereof. Yea, behold, the house of Israel hath gathered together to fight against the apostles of the Lamb. As Nephi watched, the building without foundation fell. The angel said, Thus shall be the destruction of all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people that shall fight against the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Nephi's vision continued. He saw his descendants and his brother's descendants in the promised land. They were as numerous as the sands of the sea, and there were too many cities to count. He also saw multitudes gathered for battle and great slaughters among his people. As he watched, the promised land was swallowed in darkness. He saw fire, lightning, and earthquakes. Mountains broke apart and cities were destroyed, but then the fog lifted. Nephi saw the heavens open, and he watched as the Lamb of God descended from heaven and showed himself to those who had survived the destruction. The Holy Ghost, it says, fell upon twelve others who were ordained and chosen by God. The angel explained that Christ's original twelve ministers in the Old World would judge the twelve tribes of Israel. They would also judge the 12 Nephite ministers in the New World, and the 12 apostles in the New World would judge the Nephites. After Christ's visit, three generations passed away in righteousness, and then a fourth, but then multitudes began gathering for battle. At this point, the angel paused and explained another part of Lehi's dream. Verse 16, And the angel spake unto me, saying, Behold the fountain of filthy water, which thy father saw, Yea, even the river of which he spake, and the depths thereof are the depths of hell." It's interesting to me that the angel instructed Nephi to reflect on the river of filthy water while seeing his descendants gathering for battle. He seems to be saying, This, the destruction that you're witnessing, is the river that your father saw. This is hell. Later, in 1 Nephi 15, Nephi will tell his older brothers that the water which my father saw was filthiness and so much was his mind swallowed up in other things that he beheld not the filthiness of the water. I went back and reread First 1 Nephi chapter 8 wondering what Lehi might have been thinking about that caused him to miss details of his dream like the filthiness of the water. I concluded that he might have been too worried about losing his two oldest sons to, to notice water quality. The angel continued in verse 17, And the mists of darkness are the temptations of the devil, which blindeth the eyes, and hardeneth the hearts of the children of men, and leadeth them away into broad roads, that they perish and are lost. When we read verse 17 by itself, it seems to imply that Satan has the power to deceive us and lead us away to destruction. But in Lehi's dream, an iron rod allowed travelers to arrive safely at the tree despite Satan's power and the mists of darkness and temptation. If we hold on to the iron rod, which which represents the Word of God, we can continue forward despite being blinded or having our hearts hardened by Satan's temptations. It's interesting that the iron rod doesn't make you any more able to avoid the fog or more able to see through it. The gospel doesn't remove temptations and often doesn't remove confusion. But by holding to the iron rod, you can push forward through them. The angel continued his explanation of Lehi's dream. In verse 18 he said, And the large and spacious building which thy fathers saw is vain imaginations and the pride of the children of men. And a great and terrible gulf divideth them, yea, even the word of the justice of the eternal God and the Messiah, who is the Lamb of God, of whom the Holy Ghost beareth record from the beginning of the world until this time, and from this time henceforth and forever. Because Nephi's descendants were proud and yielded to temptations, his brother's descendants, the Lamanites, eventually overpowered them and destroyed them. After this, the Lamanites spread across the land, killing each other and eventually dwindling in unbelief. Verse 23, And it came to pass that I beheld, after they had dwindled in unbelief, they became a dark and loathsome and a filthy people full of idleness and all manner of abominations. Nephi's vision continued. He saw many nations and kingdoms. His guide identified these as the nations and kingdoms of the Gentiles. The devil caused a great church to be formed in their midst. And the angel said unto me, Behold the formation of a church, which is most abominable above all other churches, which slayeth the saints of God, yea, and tortureth them, and bindeth them down, and yoketh them, with a yoke of iron, and bringeth them down into captivity. This church loved wealth, riches, expensive clothing, and harlots, and its goal was to destroy the saints and bring them into captivity. We'll discuss its identity coming up in a minute in the next chapter. Next, Nephi saw the formation of America and its prosperity, and he observed that its people carried a book, the Bible, with them. The angel explained that their Bible was similar to the brass plates, except it didn't have as many writings because several, quote, plain and precious things, quote, had been removed. In verse 30, the angel described the nation growing in the promised land. A modern reader will recognize this nation as America, and he sought being lifted above all other nations. Verse 30, Nevertheless, thou beholdest that the Gentiles who have gone forth out of captivity, And have been lifted up by the power of God above all other nations, upon the face of the land which is choice above all other lands, which is the land that the Lord God hath covenanted with thy father, that his seed should have for the land of their inheritance. Remember, Joseph Smith submitted the Book of Mormon for publication before 1830. At that time, America was still in its infancy they wouldn't become a dominant economic power for at least another 50 years, or arguably even until after World War II. When the Book of Mormon was published, the the U.S. certainly had not been lifted up above all other nations. America's period of world dominance is one of several prophecies in the Book of Mormon that would not have been a foregone conclusion in 1830. Another example of a prophecy that would have been hard to believe would be the Book of Mormon going forth to the whole world. Only a handful of books have ever gone worldwide. So picture the audacity of an uneducated farm boy prophesying, this is from the viewpoint of his detractors, that a fraudulent book he had written in which he lacked funds to get published would someday fill the whole earth. Several other verses talk about the Book of Mormon coming forth among the Gentiles on the American continent and supporting the truthfulness of the Bible. And the angel spake unto me, saying, These last records which thou hast seen among the Gentiles shall establish the truth of the first, which are of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, and shall make known the plain and precious things which have been taken away from them, and shall make known to all kindreds, tongues, and people that the Lamb of God is the Son of the Eternal Father and the Savior of the world, and that all men must come unto him or they cannot be saved. Nephi's vision continued with the angel saying, If the Gentiles... That is the people living in America, listened to the Lamb of God, He would show Himself unto them in word and deed. And if they didn't harden their hearts, they would be numbered among the house of Israel. Then the angel asked Nephi if he remembered God's covenants with the house of Israel. When Nephi confirmed that he did, the angel once again showed him the great and abominable church founded by the devil. A lot of people have speculated about the identity of the great and abominable church introduced in the previous chapter and and have wondered which of the world's thousands of religions best fits the description. But if we look at the angel's explanation to Nephi, we'll see that attempting to identify a single religion as this church is, is misguided. In verse 10, he said, And he said unto me, Behold, there are saved two churches only. The one is the church of the Lamb of God, and the other is the church of the devil, Wherefore, whoso belongeth not to the church of the Lamb of God, belongeth to that great church, which is the mother of abominations, and she is the whore of all the earth. Verse 11, And it came to pass that I looked and beheld the whore of all the earth, and she sat upon many waters, and she had dominion over all the earth, among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. No single religion, for example, meets the requirements of verse 11 because no denomination has a presence among all people. But, as the angel explained, the great and abominable church is any church other than Christ's. Now, some people interpret this to be a condemnation of any church that is not the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But Brigham Young taught differently. He explained that any teaching of Christ or any truth that draws people to Christ, or or any truth, religious or sectarian, is part of Christ's church. In, In his words, this is what he said. Mormonism, so-called, embraces every principle pertaining to life and salvation for time and eternity, no matter who has it. If the infidel has got truth, it belongs to Mormonism. The truth and sound doctrine possessed by the sectarian world, and they have a great deal, all belong to this church. As for their morality, many of them are morally just as good as we are. All that is good, lovely, and praiseworthy belongs to this church and kingdom. Mormonism includes all truth. There is no truth but what belongs to the gospel. It is life, eternal life. It is bliss. It is the fullness of all things in the gods and in the eternities of the gods. And That's from Discourses of Brigham Young. So as the angel said, there are save two churches only. The one is the church of the Lamb of God and the other is the church of the devil. But that does not mean that all other churches belong to the devil. Returning to the vision, the church of the devil covered the whole earth, and the church of the Lamb of God had only a few members. Members of the devil's church gathered together to fight against those of the Lamb's church. But the Lamb of God armed its members with righteousness and, quote, the power of God in great glory. As Nephi watched, God poured out His wrath upon the great and abominable church. Verse 15, And it came to pass, that I beheld that the wrath of God was poured out upon the great and abominable church, insomuch that there were wars and rumors of wars among all the nations and kindreds of the earth. Verse 16, And as there began to be wars and rumors of wars among all the nations which belonged to the mother of abominations, the angel spake unto me, saying, Behold, the wrath of God is upon the mother of harlots, and, behold, thou seest all these things. Usually when I think of God's wrath, I think of disease or natural disasters or acts of God as contracts sometimes call them. But in verses 15 and 16, the wrath of God took the form of wars and rumors of wars. The notion of God causing wars seemed strange to me, but Mormon helped explain this connection, the connection between God's wrath and wars in Mormon chapter 4 verse 5. But behold, the judgments of God will overtake the wicked. And it is by the wicked that the wicked are punished. For it is the wicked that stir up the hearts of the children of men unto bloodshed. God does not need to punish His children. Punishment consists of natural consequences, and it is the wicked who punish the wicked. God's commandments are not arbitrary rules imposed by a whimsical being, but rather guidelines to help us avoid negative consequences, such as wars, as we journey through mortality. Let's look at a scenario. You give someone precise directions, allowing them to pass safely through a field of thorns. If they deviate from the path and get hurt, is that because you punish them? Perhaps that allows us to see God's commandments from a slightly different angle. In Doctrine and Covenants 59 verse 4, God promises that he will bless us with, quote, commandments, not a few. This allows us to more precisely navigate and avoid thorns. Nephi ends the retelling of his vision with his angel guide showing him John the Beloved. Although Nephi was allowed to see the remainder of the vision, writing about it would be John's responsibility. Nephi concluded by saying, If all the things which I saw are not written, the things which I have written are true. Okay, that's all we have for today. But before we go, I want to end with a trivia question. This will be another easy one. How long... Were Nephi and his group in the wilderness? We will see you next time.